Welcome to Track Changes. My name is Rich Ziotti. I'm Paul Ford. We are the co-founders of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. Rich, tell the people what Postlight does. Postlight is a digital product studio. We design, architect, build, and ship. We love to ship tech products. We do it for... Apps, platforms, web, you name it. Internet of Things... Who are some clients we can talk about? We can talk about Vice. We built a big Vice News. Vice. Wow. We Vice built their, News. the platform that's powering much of yes. Vice's traffic. Did a fun project with Bloomberg. Yeah. Just um, a little bit of everybody. We like everybody. We like everybody. We like everybody. And so if you want to get, if you want to talk to us, uh, send an email to hello at postlight.com. All right. In the studio today is someone who is somewhat hard to quantify. Her name is Anna Holmes. Anna, hello. <laughs> quantify. I, hard to quantify. Well, you don't have what I would call like a, I wouldn't, okay, Anna Holmes, what do you do? Um, I am the SVP of editorial at Topic slash First Look Media. Um, that means that I am the, also, well, not also, but part of that means that I'm the editorial director of Topic.com, which is a eight week, 10 week old site. It's a <laughs> A site we just launched that's devoted to, um, to visual storytelling, video, short film, photography, illustration. All right, so this is a very new thing. Let's let's figure out how you got there and talk a little bit about where you came from. Okay. You founded yeah. Jezebel, right? I did, yeah. What were you doing before you founded Jezebel? I worked in magazines for oh. a long time. That was back when I liked and, and wanted to work for magazines, before, <laughs> but before they became um, a bit boring to Which me. Which magazines? Um, well, I'll start from the beginning. So, well, the, tell us actually before the beginning, the beginning, beginning. What's where'd you grow up? Funny that you should ask. I grew up in Davis, California, and one of my um, fellow students was Paul's wife. That's bizarre. Which is which I didn't I didn't even know she lived in New York until it is so weird until she reached out because she was working. F- she was assisting the man who does like the accountant who does my taxes. And so I guess maybe she saw my tax return and was like, hey, it's That's Mo. Um, that was it. She saw your taxes. Yeah. yeah. So she saw how much I made or didn't make that year. I don't remember what to year be, that was. To be but clear, I have no idea. We we have a okay. nice wall in our home. Oh, I, I, I wasn't worried. I'm not worried. Okay. About, yeah. So <laughs> back like, up, I, you're teaching where? No, I wasn't teaching. You said my student. Oh, my fellow student. Fellow Sorry, student. my fellow student. Sorry. So, so meaning that she and Sorry. I are both at the same high school. Got She's it. She's a year behind me. What, okay. what, she graduated in 92. Okay. Probably. Yeah. So I Davis. Know, I know the Davis, California, well. a little college town. Okay. Um, yeah, which I, which I immediately left upon graduating from aforementioned high school and, and moved here to go to, oh. NY, to, go to NYU, okay. um, which was, mm, it was I, I have conflicting feelings about it. Uh, and and I wanted to be in journalism and work in magazines as a writer. Okay. That's what I wanted to do when I was younger. And, and, and no one said don't do that. No, but yeah. no one no one knew to say don't do that. Right. Um, right. But magazines were pretty robust back then. This was in the you know I graduated high school ninety one. I graduated college ninety five. I had a couple of internships during the time that I was at NYU. One of which led to a job after college. That was at Entertainment Weekly. That was my first magazine job. But I was not a writer there. I was an assistant to, an, ed- to great, an editor. That's a great bathroom magazine. And here's what I mean it's by bathroom. <laughs> just give me a sec, Paul. Well, you know, it, you don't take it with you. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And then for that, those um, Go cherished on. three yeah. minutes, you pick it up because it's all snack size. Mm-hmm. And then you put it down and you can yeah. leave. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it anymore wow. than that. that okay. was, but also... But, but, and it's I, would you... 
agree with this characterization? Uh, I maybe I would. Well, first of all, I haven't looked at it in a long time, so <laughs> so maybe that's the way that it is now. But in the nineties, it was it was a very like it was a much more robust magazine really? because, because the internet had not taken over and ah. and, and 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 um a big platform. I mean, just like a lot of people read it, and it, it was very of, popular. And had, had a lot, lot of power. Yeah. yeah, totally. And I mean, yes, there were certainly snack size or bite sized pieces in there, but there were also long features, long features. on a, on everything from. What you would expect, like a, a movie star or an upcoming film of that movie yeah. star or director, but you know, to uh, a, an up and coming um, writer of literary fiction, and and oh, so, really? Yeah, sure, sure, it's sure. It's not that. It's anymore. not that now. No, no, no. no but no. but I think that, that that I don't think that's because it. it, cha- it I don't think that it's it's change has really much to do with anything other than the fact that the internet ruined a lot of reacting. No, but yeah. they would. Do, I'm sure they would do like like a new Philip Roth novel or something like that could could easily. Yeah, they be. wouldn't probably put him on the cover, but they would probably do a, a one to two page feature on him. Right. Sure, if they if they could get him to do the interview. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, so you're there how long? I was there for maybe two and a half, three years, oh, and, then I, and then I went to go work for HBO in their documentary film department because I Whoa. thought I wanted to work in documentary film. That sounds. I mean, you went to a pretty good place. Yeah, yeah. To do documentary. Film. Yeah, and it was a great. Um, it was a small. Uh, department. It was mostly female run. The head of HBO documentaries then and now is Sheila Nevins. Um, she was not my direct boss. I, I was my but direct boss was was one of her lieutenants, um, a VP of documentary programming. But you know there were only eight of us in the whole department, so it was very. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that I didn't want to be a. a I didn't want to be working in documentary film from behind a desk. Like mm. my, my my love of documentary film, my interest in it was more. Either as a watcher of, of films or potentially as, as like, like to make them, I, I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want my, my boss's job. Yeah. Um, she had a great job, but I didn't want it. I realized that, yeah. and I also kind of missed writing. So after that, I went to Glamour magazine. You know, by the time I was in my late twenties, what had become clear to me was that if I was going to continue to work in magazines, which I did for a while, they were mostly going to be consumer service magazines that I didn't really want to be working for. I'd rather have, I would rather have worked for a magazine that was more about ideas than you know, selling lipstick or fashion mm-hmm. or insecurities to young women, which is, which is what I did That's when I worked at... called Glamour yeah, Magazine. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think, I think it was... It, it really felt like New York media was a very... Um, it was a hard nut to crack, and that's not specific to me. It was a hard nut to crack for a lot of people, but I just I, I think I, I think that you know moving the five years ahead from there, when I was in my mid thirties, the ascendancy of digital media and the fact that it became legitimized, people were paying salaries to people who worked on websites and digital media that actually competed with the salaries you can make at magazines. Just it, it it broke everything open in a good way, and I think sure. that it, be, be, it, it did, and still continues to offer opportunities to people who don't have certain backgrounds. Because I don't know if I'd say it's more meritocratic, but you you know there are people, as you know, who writers, editors who have made their name by self publishing, and you know got noticed on the strength and quality of their work, not because right. they went to Princeton. You didn't have to use the conventional channels right. to well, get there. You know right. what I would say really blew it open? Because that insularity is completely real. And it, it's like, it defines that industry of like the ideas-driven publication. Somebody I knew who worked at The New Yorker described uh, someone who had to leave The New Yorker as not Harvard material, <laughs> right? Which is just like a really good indicator of how that all works. Right. Regardless, God bless The New Yorker. Onward, the... 
traffic, I think, changed everything because suddenly I felt this really keenly. You could see how something was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in one of those those spaces where everybody's thinking their big ideas and writing their pieces and assigning mm-hmm. essays, it moves very slowly and there's this sort sure. of sense of like holistic, you know, gestalt and, mm-hmm. and you know, what, the, what everything means and, and it doesn't actually translate back to numbers. But one of the things that web media did was kind of blow that open and be like, look, if you do this well, we can make this kind of money. So can you do it? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of careers and a lot of people who are now in that world, in the world of sort of like very highfalutin journalism actually got their start in the I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, like Adrian Chen, people like that who would sure. hustled around inside of Gawker mm-hmm. and made sure they were getting some kind of numbers and then yeah. ended up at places like The New Yorker, The Times Magazine so yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And at first, everybody was repulsed. Oh, my God. They're, they worry about the numbers of people who are reading the authors. This is going to ruin everything. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was repulsed even as I participated in it to, to a certain degree repulsed because um, at least when I was an editor at Jezebel, for example, which was my first experience with like having to deal with those sorts of analytics, um, I didn't want the, my writers to base their self-worth wholly on the traffic that they were bringing in because they all wrote about different sorts of things. And Mm -hmm. some of those things were more likely to generate traffic than others. And just because, you know, a post that had to do with something regarding a celebrity or a pop culture um, product like a reality TV show, you know, was doing 20,000 page views within a few hours and the story that another staffer wrote about an upcoming Supreme Court decision that affected women's reproductive rights was only getting 2,000 did not mean that the 20,000 page view story was more important. That's tough, yeah. right? Because that those numbers are addictive. You just tend to want to yeah. stare at them. Well, <laughs> and they're real. Like you can massage them here and there and think about them in different yeah. ways, but you have to make an objective decision and someone else can come in and say, well, actually, I really just want the 20,000. I can always yeah. distinguish yeah. that writer who pounces on the comment thread. They're like second comment. Like they're waiting for the the chatter to start to jump back in, and then there are other writers who just they're gone. They wrote their piece. I don't know Enjoy. any writers who like comment threads, <laughs> but but I also don't know many people who are looking at comment threads anymore. I feel like the comment threads have my, migrated to Twitter or Facebook. Um, I think Twitter in particular for the yeah. media. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really I was really thinking a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we for example at Jezebel we had fantastic commenters who were extremely loyal. Um, were Incredibly knew each other, prolific. Right? They started to know each other. Whether they, well, I don't know that they knew each other in real life, but they certain they certainly yeah. knew each other because they were commenting on the site every day, and and you know they became known for you know, this person's really funny, and this person's Some really incisive, great. and this person <laughs> is always going after the editors of Jezebel, and <laughs> yet we don't ban her, and <laughs> um, and that sort of stuff. And we had the most. Um, I think we had the most comments of any Gawker Media site in terms of sheer volume, oh. even though we didn't have the most traffic of any Gawker Media site because it, it, there was such a big community and an important community. And I think it was a community yeah, that was very important to the commenters as well. It was not something that I engineered. Like, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, I was very happy when it did. There was a dark side to it. They could really be a pain in the ass. But... I, I, it wasn't something that I engineered in advance that I knew that we were going to create, you know, that this, that this was going to give birth to this commenter culture. But a lot of the commenters then became writers themselves, and some of whom were like paid writers now. Like, they, hmm. like, well, one of the takeaways from that job that continues to make me feel really warm and fuzzy is that there were a number of women who have said that they, this sounds corny, that they kind of found their voices 
commenting in the common threads and, and mm. having that community and then found the courage maybe that they hadn't gained the confidence to, to that, that that they not only had things that were important to say but that other people outside of let's say the common threads of Jezebel might want to hear them why so do you think great. that why did that happen there instead of elsewhere because I don't think that's happening on Facebook <sighs> it's maybe happening on Twitter <sighs> I don't know if I, I don't know. Like I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I, it, it may have just been like that. That it was the right time. Mm-hmm. I, um, I mean, and, and, and Facebook and Twitter were not as big nor as powerful nor nor as widely used as they are now. Then, and this was you know, ten years ago, but right. they just weren't. Um, like Facebook was not a large driver of traffic to us. We didn't really care about whether our stuff was being posted on Facebook. Th- those social media platforms just didn't have the sort of oomph that they have now. And and the other thing I'd say is that, you know, people read blogs back then and they read them all day long, uh, oftentimes, and they would refresh a page mm-hmm. and it would be updated. And it was almost like an ongoing conversation from the time we started posting until the time we stopped. And then we'd start over again the next day. People don't really read websites like that anymore. I, I don't know that they go to URLs and refresh them over and over and over again. And they, they come to things through social media. And well, so th- websites can never provide the same level of velocity, right? So if you're looking for that satisfaction of I hope there's something new, Twitter and Facebook are going to tr- have trained us that I'm going to get it there. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. going to get it. I'm probably not going to get it anywhere else. Maybe it's some of the really big aggregated media sites like mm-hmm. the Voxes and the Vices, but the even there, um, it's just never going to compare to that velocity mm-hmm. of your mm-hmm. friends talking, right? Well, uh, you know, and, th- and there's something also to be said for the interaction between uh, readers, commenters, and staffers that, again, can be very exhausting, probably for the commenters as well, but definitely for the staffers. But I think that hopefully, in, with regards to Jezebel at least, our interaction with them at times it wasn't constant, and sometimes it was it was pissy because mm-hmm. <laughs> they could be pissy. But that we were real people in, in, as part of a community, and that we were listening to them, that they were being heard, even if we didn't agree with them. I mean, I think one of the best comment sections on the web at that time was um, on the blog of Ta-Nehisi Coates because he would get in there and talk to his readers, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 disagree with them, and he made himself present, like it was a conversation he was having. In, Every day. In the thread? In, in the, the comment threads. In the comment mm-hmm. threads? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he would also base posts on things that commenters had said previously. Like oh, he, wow. the, the, the thing I really loved about his his blog back then is that it was he was exhibiting a curiosity about the world and was taking readers along with him as he educated himself on things that he didn't know a lot about previously. Like there was a whole... Um, period of time where he was really into the Civil War. Like, he knew a, a fair bit about the Civil War before he started reading these big history books about the Civil War. But then he would he would get excited by something that he'd encountered in one of the books, and he would write a blog post about it. Um, so, and I guess what I'm saying is he never approached the Internet the way a lot of the people approach the Internet now, which is to say that they always have an answer to everything, that, mm-hmm. like, they're making a statement, and they, here's their opinion. And, like, he... He came from a place of curiosity, which I think was very welcoming to his readers and to his audience because they could go on this journey with him. That's not typical. No, it's not. And that's why I find the Internet really exhausting now because everyone seems to yeah. proclaim or they, they make proclamations. Yeah. Well, they also seek impact, too. Right. Like, how do I make sure this lands loud? Right. Otherwise, 
who the hell is going to hear it? There's just too much going I on. I guess so. But yeah, there, there's there's such a thing as, you know, as cr- crying wolf. And when everyone's loud and screaming all the time, then at least my inclination is to put my fingers in my ears and walk away. Yeah. Um, I, I think also the price of participation at this point is like three paragraphs of defensive prose at the top of anything you do saying like, I know this is going to upset this person. Or and I'm talking about like technical posts. Like, I know this will get the Java engineers incredibly angry when I say this. But <laughs> when you go into culture, it just becomes a, a, a war zone. Yeah, and it, that wasn't happening back then. It was happening a little bit back then. And certainly we contributed to it. I'm not pretending, I'm not going to say like we, Jezebel, were totally innocent of, we, we've certainly contributed to that culture of creating war zones around certain things. Yeah. It's exhausting for editors and writers, though. Yeah. My God. Okay, I'll put it this way. The most exhausting things about that particular job, which again was some time ago now, were the, constantly having to be up to date on everything that was happening in the world mm-hmm. because it was a blog and we were being reactive to things. There were certainly things that we published um, that were not aggregated or reactive to something that had happened that were like features that we had planned out in advance, but the <laughs> 95% of the stuff we published was um, in reaction to what, what else was going on in the world and on the web. Exhausting because the web never turns off, so I didn't either. The other thing were the commenters because I... Often, I think probably, I can't speak for the other people who worked there, but I often felt resentful of them because I didn't think they understood how hard we worked and that it was really like the only thing in our lives. Like the only thing that we did all day was work on this blog. And that's not a complaint, but like we like, we, we were putting a lot of effort into it and there were certain times when commenters would say things that suggested that they thought they could do the, our jobs better. And mm-hmm. there was one time when I had a discussion with a staffer and I said, you know what, maybe I'm just going to give the blog over to two of the most <laughs> obnoxious commenters for one day. I want to see them hand code Oh, yeah. I want to see them find photos to upload, not to mention having to like turn around a piece in 45 minutes yeah. that is you know, well-written and easy. concise. It, yeah. It's just easy and to, to do this, you. to do this for yeah. 12 hours straight. I'd this, like, is, yeah. this is a human fantasy, though, that yeah. everybody else is kind of incompetent. And then if you could just get in there, right? right. You could, I mean, we all do it. And then the minute you get a taste of what the actual work is like, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, my God. And then eventually over time, you're like, wow, I guess everybody kind of has hard jobs. If they're, if they're working mm-hmm. hard and they're like leading or doing something or making something, mm-hmm. that to me, like the amount of process necessary to get a thing mm-hmm. out uh, is... Most people don't come to that revelation. No, they were like watching TV and going, I could make a better TV show than yeah. Breaking Bad, right? Like, yeah, let's is, say like, let's see you try. Or, or it's like, I don't like his forehead. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, <laughs> it's, that's where the brain is. I had this, this revelation when I was dressing my daughter when she was like 18 months old and she was freaking out because it was pink pants instead of purple pants. And yesterday she liked the pink pants. And it was just like, there's no logic there. It's just a, she just had a whole body reaction. Mm-hmm. And was expressing a preference as a as a toddler will do. But then mm-hmm. as I started to look around, I'm like, oh, that's just what people do all day. Like the Internet is this engine where you can just sort of go and, and just yell at things. And you assume that the people on the other side somehow are like really into your ideas. <laughs> about the, So wait, fast forward a little bit for us because yeah. you're, you're up to something new now. I don't want to dwell yeah. on, on the, the um, lesson. So <laughs> Jezebel to now, what happened? Uh, well, I left Jezebel in 2010. I mean, right. I, I ran it for about three and a half years, and then I okay. became very burned out. It was it was not like a sustainable, healthy situation for me. I, oh, okay. I, I, don't, I don't regret it at all, um, and I don't actually regret how hard I worked, although it, um, you know, things in my life suffered because of it, namely my, my marriage, because I worked all the time. But um, when I left, there were some, you know, it, it, it was established at that point. It, it was pretty influential in the culture. Um, there were discussions about trying to develop 
other things around it with the brand, like a TV show and, and a book. And so I was on like a, con- I was a consultant to Gawker Media. I wasn't on staff anymore, but I was a consultant being paid to help try and develop these um, related products, if you want to call it that. And we so we sold the book and I worked on the book, which was called The Book of Jezebel, for a couple of years. It didn't come out until 2013. So I was freelance writing and doing the book sometimes doing the book meant not doing the book like procrastinating a lot um and trying to like get my life back because i had really been consumed by running that site and had the the primary emotion that had been coursing through me from the very beginning and never really let up until after i quit was one of high anxiety now maybe that I don't again know that that's a bad thing because it made me very motivated and like I, I and and con- convinced that I could not fail at it like the, the thing had to succeed and the and the one way that I could at least control whether or not it succeeded was to work really 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 hard. Sure. If it didn't succeed despite my working really 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 hard, then I would know I had done all I could do. So after I left, it was a lot of like coming down from from that and actually not getting up at six in the morning and. You know, walking around and not ordering in junk food. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Uh, the endless stimulation is becomes comforting too. You're like, oh, well, you never. Oh, it's very addictive. Yeah. Yeah, it was very addictive. Like, I that's actually when I got into Twitter was Mm -hmm. after I quit. That's when, and I think Twitter was just kind of becoming taking off then as well among media folks. I mean, media folks were already on it and had been, but like it 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 started my my quitting of Jezebel coincided with my. Then later addiction to Twitter, sure. um, which is also now been um, left behind. Anyway, what I was going to say was, so for a couple of years I was I was writing. I did a column for the Washington Post style section about culture and gender politics and race for a while. And I was working on the book and then the book came out and I wasn't sure what sort of full time job I wanted to have. I really didn't know what to do next. I didn't want to run another website that was dependent on being reactive to news cycles it was too exhausting and at that and at that point i was you know in my i guess my early 40 39 or 40 years old so i didn't take a full-time job until 2014 this would be four years after i quit um gawker media and i took a full-time job with fusion which was you know had just started I don't know if I was hired as the editorial director. Like, I think that there was a discussion about me being the editor, and I didn't want to be the editor. I didn't want to be in charge. And Fusion at that point was kind of like a family of sites or the site. I mean, it was a little vague. Well, two no. sentences on what what is Fusion. What, what, what I, I can't tell you what it is now because I don't look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's not called Fusion it's anymore. It's called Splinter. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, um, but it was it was like an uh, it was a startup funded in part by Univision and in part by ABC Disney that had a cable, a linear cable channel, and they were building out a, a digital presence that would align with the cable channel to a certain degree, but also not. So I was at Fusion for about a year, or a little over a year. Listen, I, I liked a lot of the people that I worked with. It was a very easy job. Like, I, I, I was not up at 6 in the morning and staying up till 11 um, every you're night. A, you're an exec. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. But um, it wasn't... Um, fulfilling to me and at the time that I was there I started having discussions with the man who is now my boss at First Look Media and I didn't know him I'd been recommended to him by someone that he worked with and still works at First Look Media in terms of the creation of a editorial digital editorial 
unit within his bigger unit at FLM, and that is to say within their film, TV, and digital studio, which was being built out. So I was recommended to him, and he and I had breakfast or lunch a few times, and he was just he was figuring out what he wanted to do with the studio unit, and 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 not just what sorts of projects that he wanted to be developing and producing, commissioning, and and putting out into the world, but what its ethos was going to be and how it would behave or be represented digitally. And so we just had these, these kinds of exploratory conversations. So does First Look exist yet at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what is First Look at okay. this point? You're making me start from the beginning. No, no, no. <laughs> just, <laughs> no, no I'm not give complaining. Me a, give, me a, give me like a one First Look Media is a, comp- is a company that was founded by Piero Omidyar, who's um, oh, I know one of the guy. founders of, of eBay. And now, well, I'm, I don't know him. I know of him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not necessarily going to get the like inception story exactly right, <laughs> but but you know my my understanding is that he was moved to fund and found this you know, media organization with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and Jeremy Scahill because of his interest in adversarial investigative journalism and First Amendment issues, and so. First Look Media was found. I don't remember what year it was founded. Okay, so this been, is like sort of the mission statement of yeah, of but but, but don't quote me on that because no, 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 fine. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a couple years. It's like four years maybe. So yeah. what yeah. what state was it in when you when you started these conversations? Well, they had they had a unit called the Intercept, which they still have, which I believe was okay. the first editorial unit within First Look Media, and they had a unit called Field of Vision, which okay. they still have, which is Laura Poitras's documentary film unit. So this is all in place when you started these conversations. Oh, and they so, have lovely offices. I bet they do. Yeah, Based yeah. on what you described, I bet they have You nice have a pretty lovely office yourself, We have a nice office, but it's not like seven acres of well, space. Well, because yeah, you don't have as many people yet. Yeah, but we, I mean... Right. We'll this, get there. Um, yeah. So when I got there, so the Intercept the intercept was in place, Field Division was in place, reportedly was there, and those were on the non-profit side of the company. And there was the there had been the creation of a for-profit side of the company in order to eventually make money to fund the nonprofit side mm-hmm. so that Pierre Midiard doesn't have to shell out his own money. Like he wanted it to be self-sustaining and sure. eventually. And on the for-profit side, there was there were two things. There there was the acquisition of the NIB, the political cartooning site that had previously been over at Medium and is run by Matt Bores. And there's the, the there was the film, TV and digital studio. And the first film that the studio ever produced, co-produced, whatever you want to call it, invested in was Spotlight, which then won an Oscar. So it's the first film they do and then it's good out a, of the gate. Okay. Best picture Oscar. And, you know, the idea behind the for profit side, particularly the film the Jill and T V studio, is to make stories of consequence but as entertainment. I mean like it like Spotlight is a Hollywood movie, but it's about journalism and and the Catholic Church and all sorts of stuff and cover ups and it's entertaining but it you know it has something oh, to say just, yeah. and it's very character driven and very creator driven um, Tom McCarthy who directed it so the idea behind the studio is to invest in and commission projects like that they don't all have to be dramas and they certainly are not all feature films but expanding out into TV and into digital and so with, with regards to the digital stuff when I finally started having serious conversations with my boss, who's the head of the studio, his name is Adam Pincus. Well, I talked to him about my frustration with digital media at that point in time, which continues today, in, in that there was a lot of noise on the internet and on social media, a lot of reactivity to news cycles, and a kind of sameness that I was 
seeing among certain media brands to all cover the same cover the same thing and react to the same thing and you know with the same point of view or a similar point of view and that there was a certain sameness to conversations online and that I was more interested in in exploring how to tell stories visually because what is baked into telling stories stories visually or at least the sort of stories that I want us to be telling and that we are telling is that they take a long time to put together so they cannot be reactive to the news cycle they can be reflective of the culture they can certainly feel very relevant to an era or a time but they're not reacting to something that Trump said a week prior yeah or two hours prior you need time to because, put them together and because they're very expensive to produce and sure. so then you have to really work hard to make sure that they're going to be good that doesn't mean they're always going to be good but you know you cannot like the 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 possibility of failure is more stressful with budgets like that you know maybe this isn't a great analogy but you know if i'm going to use the time in jezebel there were certainly things that we did that were experimental but if a post didn't work, if it didn't land, or if it was a really big stinker and people got really upset about it, within three hours it was off the homepage because mm-hmm. it was constantly posting. And if the most it cost is seven hundred dollars because maybe a freelancer wrote it, you just can't do that with you know high production value uh, video, mm-hmm. short film, photography, illustration, and 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 you know ironically or perhaps maybe not ironically. The visual storytelling that we do requires a lot of words before it gets to the visual state. You know, it requires a lot of planning and discussion and emails and treatments. And so it isn't that words is it isn't that I'm not working or dealing with words. It's that the final product is is more visual than anything else. But but words matter. Tell us um, about like one story so people can kind of frame well, it in what, their head. What is this called? Okay, so I started at First Look Media in April of 2016. I was getting the lay of the land. The studio was getting bigger. I started hiring people for a website that would be the digital arm of this film and TV studio that we decided to name Topic. And we launched it in late June of this year. Like the website went live in late June of this year. So it took a a little over a year. Yeah. Um, It took a little over a year for that whole process to, to play itself out. Because okay. you had to hire, you had to... Yeah, we also, I also had to, we also had to figure out like what it was going to be, and then we had to talk about the design of it. And I mean, there are all sorts of... You know, sure. You guys know. <laughs> well, but um, I mean, so that's a very specific thing, though. So first of all, actually, as we're talking about this, we were talking... You perked up like like about four minutes ago. As you're I like, did? Yeah, you're like, digital media. And you got... You're just like, your your eyes lit up, and you're... you're what, just when like, I was complaining about digital media? No, or, what, or when yeah, I was... because you're literally like, let me fix it. And then... No, they, no, no, but I don't think <laughs> that I can fix anything. I just am disinterested in, in a lot of the ways that it's... I mean, I, I'm disinterested in a lot of digital media right now because of the, the sameness of it and the reactivity of it and the exhaustion and the yelling or the the attempt to be the loudest voice in the room because otherwise you won't get heard and I'm just like not interested in that it used to be kind of amusing and sometimes it was even fun and now I just don't I, I just it's exhausting it is exhausting so how could we make how could we make digitally native visual short form storytelling that wasn't reactive to the news cycle and that felt like it had a, a lifespan of beyond an hour a week a month etc and you know, one, we thought about that very deeply and explored different ways. And some of the ways that we were doing that involves short form digital series, which is to say either scripted or documentary episodic pieces that run, let's say, between four minutes and 12 minutes. Because because we were also, you know, very cognizant of the fact that their audiences, you know, have they have less and less time and like they like to consume short pieces visual pieces like you know the popularity of instagram people like looking at pictures they like Mm -hmm. looking at videos 
but can we do things that we feel raise the bar in terms of the production value and feel more evergreen in terms of what the story is that again are not gonna are not gonna be irrelevant two days later. Now wait, but most media orgs at this point would be like, oh, you want to do that? Great, do a cooking show. Everybody likes food. Like that's kind of where this kind of thinking keeps going. So you had well, a bro- give me an, like who, who you who you referring to? Oh, I'm just thinking like the way BuzzFeed approaches the world, or you know, just sort of like there's a, a sense of like, okay, here's well, what's that's working. Still very much traffic driven, right? I mean, right. So it's it sounds like you had a little well, more room here. A cooking show is probably going to be a lot cheaper than a scripted series. Okay, like so a lot cheaper because they're going to do it in a studio, and and it's not that BuzzFeed is cheap. It's just, but like that, like that's a way to produce content relatively inexpensively. And the thing is, BuzzFeed is getting into. The, these other spaces that, sure, sure. so so it's not that yeah but buzzfeed cooks a casserole in like 30 seconds high speed <laughs> well they also have you know hundreds if not thousands of people who work for them you know in order to turn that stuff around sure, right we're, we're, we're just at the beginning of our so have you created challenge. any episodes or, or features yet well so we launched in late june yeah and i also want to just be very clear there are people who work within the studio whose job it is to develop like development executives who develop TV and film, but also are developing short form content, both for topic.com, the URL on which the stuff most a lot of the stuff that we make lives, but also developing developing it for distribution by other companies, like like things that will be sold to other companies and distributed by them. So am I personally developing stuff? I am work I'm working with my colleagues to develop things for the URL. Yes. And the first thing we released, which was in late June, was a triptych of short films by a young filmmaker named Jim Cummings. And that was something, like, the process of of bringing that to life involved a development executive that I work with who knew Jim's work, who showed me some of his previous work in his shorts and us talking to him on the phone about what his ideas were and him sending in scripts and treatments and us talking it over with him again and over and over and over again and then, you know, getting the green light to go ahead with it and having him put it into production and then the cuts coming in and you know it it was a long process it was pretty quick in the whole scheme of things it was like eight weeks (laughs) um but it wasn't like this happened within one week or two weeks and so we released those as part of our launch issue along with a number of other things so let me just back up and tell you what's what's on topic.com or what like how it's like what the kind of structure of it is we have monthly storytelling packages that we just call issues Sounds like magazines. And every piece in that storytelling package is programmed around a particular theme. So for June slash July, the theme was State of the Union. It was about the United States. The triptych I just mentioned had commented on the United States. We had an anthology of short films, previously produced short films that we did not make, that we that we licensed and put into a kind of playlist that we call a mixtape, all that we felt you know commented on the United States about seven to eight photo essays um, that we commissioned, that my photo editors commissioned, that commented on some aspect of the United States, and then a couple of illustration projects. So that was June, July, State of the Union. So this is URL. You can go see all of it. Yes. It's free. Yes, it's free. And it's packaged up as June, July issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know the themes about six, seven months in advance. So for August, the theme was female troubles. Everything had to do with an aspect of what it is to be female today and that the centerpiece like the centerpiece of each issue is always a always a piece of original filmmaking or digital video for august it was a a a five episode series 
called Everything is Okay, which was written and performed by a young comedian, female comedian named Shirako Dunlap. For September, which launched on Wednesday, the theme is Rashomon. And the centerpiece is an hour-long documentary um, that was made by two Israeli filmmakers about a terrorist attack that took place in, uh, in Israel in 2015. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it, but it's a very powerful 56-minute documentary. Um, this is the first time we will have put something of that length up on the site. And everything around that feature speaks to the theme of Rashomon, which we picked because the film itself has a Rashomon-like quality to it. What is Rashomon? Rashomon mean? is a 1950 film by Akira Kurosawa that is a classic film because of the way he kind of uh, upended or played with what was then conventional film or storytelling structure. And the word has taken on a life of its own to mean multiple perspectives often contradictory perspectives on the same thing. That, that's, what it, that, that's what the structure of this documentary is, or is essentially. And, and, and so everything around the film, the, the photo essays, they may not relate to the film. They don't directly, but they relate to the theme of Rashomon. So all the photos, illustration pieces, other short films that we acquired are on the theme of Rashomon. So we're going to do that every month. What are people making of it? I don't know. That's great. That's great. Good. good to see you got the metrics in place. Well, no, 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 no. no so it's, it's, it's not about metrics, but like, like what, what I hear from people, and like, but the, you know, let's be very clear. This, this, this is not necessarily everything that's being said is very positive. But I think people are not totally. They, they're trying to figure out what to make of it because nothing like it really exists. We don't have much time left, so okay. two questions I yes. want to get out of you. How do you make money? We don't make money right now. How do you plan to make money? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Fair. Because, because, because like, like, the, like we have a lot of ideas and strategies about how about what we're working towards, yeah. but I can't talk about it publicly. Okay. Um, I, just a, a suggestion. I was looking at The Atlantic yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was reading something, and the whole screen fell down, and a big Platinum American Express card <laughs> flew across the screen. So don't, uh-huh. don't do that. And then it Fell, it went back and it went up. back up. Yeah, yeah. We don't have any advertising on the site right now, and okay. I, and that's that's in part because we don't want to have any advertising on the site. We want to ha- we want people to interesting first understand what it is we're trying to do, mm. which is again a bit of a leap for them because they're not accustomed to it. Yeah, they're not accustomed to a website that doesn't update all the time. Sure. Now the Twitter and Facebook feeds are are have, have momentum because they're either they're promoting stuff that we're doing, but the URL. You know, has a burst of momentum and then is somewhat static. And I get the I get the newsletter. I'm like, oh, I have to go check that out. That'll, t- but it, it's going to take a minute, so I don't always yeah. go check it out. Mm-hmm. But then I see the stuff on social, and I'm like, yeah. oh, oh, okay, I should go look at this. Like, well, this is the building yeah. of this brand and the goodwill around it. Sure. You know I mean? So, 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 what I hear is is positive. I, yeah. I um, but those are from people who know me and who are biased to you know want to like the stuff that I and my colleagues right. make. Um, but we're hearing great things from a lot of the creators in the community, whether they're filmmakers or photographers, like you know visual storytellers that that e- even people that we haven't worked with seem very intrigued by it and have been responding so positively that we are kind of inundated with pitches. That's great. Um, Second question. Yes. Are you enjoying it? Yes. Yes, and I, I, mean, I, 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 I work. I work. I work all the time. You literally like you come up like three inches off of your chair yeah, like when that. you're talking yeah. about because we're your trying work. something new and it's really challenging. And yeah, like yeah. also, also I'm learning a lot of things because I'm working alongside people who've been doing particular jobs for years, decades, 
And so they're learning things from me about digital media and about that sort of storytelling or bringing in audiences or building audiences. And I'm learning from them about like how they construct a TV show. Um, right. Yeah, see, I think this is the real deal. That's oh, it's why I wanted to talk to you. This oh, is really? The, this is the real thing. Yeah, because, you know, we talked to a lot of people. What people are doing is uh, they're thinking about packaging now. They're thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, we got to put some video with some text. And we got like there. And we build a lot of systems. So people come to us and they're like, can you help us do that? Mm-hmm. But the underlying thing they're getting to is that human beings now have experiences that are like very transmedia all across devices, mm-hmm. all across all sorts of stuff, which is very conventional wisdom. We've all been saying it for years. Mm-hmm. But when we back into like what kind of content can we make it tends to be garbage like yeah. it's just like oh well what people really like are cats so let's make the transmedia cat yeah, I like cats. driven it's driven by the business model i love cats yeah. too yeah well i think i think oftentimes people default to what what is work working for other companies or, or out of fear they default to those things like okay we have yeah. to have, we have to do more this we have is to do the more, model like, do Look. more explainer videos right no, but I'm I'm not trying to suggest that we have everything figured out. Like we are we are trying something new, and and there and the reason I set up three more inches is not just because it's really fun, but because it's very challenging, and because I don't have the answer as to like what it's going to look like a year and a half from now. I know where we want to go. Yeah, and, there's an experimental but, aspect to this. Yeah, but you're right? producing quality components of the like I, whether the whole thing ends up fitting together is, is something you have to figure out, mm-hmm. right? But like the individual pieces are quite good. They're at the level of any national publication or any national like. Um, media outlet, right? That's great to hear. No, they I, are. I, 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 ho- I mean, I'm, I hope so, but... No, they, but. They, they are. But you also know kind of at some level that they are. They're good. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's fascinating because this is the template people have been asking for and have been complaining about. And like, it's not there. It doesn't happen. Why don't we get the, the X we deserve? Mm-hmm. And it's happening. You're doing it. Um, all right. What do you? What kind of help do you need? Should anyone... Do you need anyone? Do you, you need mean anything? Like, the, like staffers? Yeah, pitches. What? I am always interested in, we collectively are always interested in hearing story ideas from from folks. The way that film and TV works is very different from the way that that the digital side works. Film and TV is very traditional in that most of the pitches that they get come through traditional channels. They come through either the relationships that the development executives already have with filmmakers or they come through agents. Like no one can, someone can't just send in their like script, movie script and expect it to be read by one of our film development people. For a variety of reasons. With the digital stuff, people are emailing us. And, and we're also reaching out to creators that we like because we're familiar with their work or we like because we just found them the day before because someone tweeted out something cool that they did. I, I like to think of the digital unit of the studio as being the place where we can maybe experiment the most because even though it's very expensive to produce the stuff that we do, it is not as expensive to produce as it is to produce a feature film. So, you know, you can maybe develop you know, three to four or five feature films a year, but we can, we have the opportunity to do more on the digital side because in relation to TV or film, it's cheaper. It's not cheap, but it's cheaper. So we can experiment a little bit more and experimenting means uh, working with unknown or up and coming voices that maybe a film production or distribution company wouldn't want to take a chance on. So, so that, there's risks yeah. you can take. You can sure. you can take risks with people sort of in collaboration with them and do new sure. things more quickly. Yeah. Um, all right. So people should go to the URL, which is... Topic.com. Topic. That's a good URL. Uh-huh. See, Pierre, one, one thing when you found eBay is you can go get the good You can URL. get the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and they can find... I'm, I'm assuming they can find ways to get in touch there. Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. There, there's an about page that explains not just who we are and what we do, but how to get in touch with us. Cool. All right. Well, I'm... 
kind of fascinated to get the backstory on this thing and understand a little more about <laughs> also what's cool. Going on. It's, it's just true. New. There's just all kinds of stuff getting foon, spoon fed into our faces all day long. <laughs> no, it's good. We should just get off Twitter and sort of check this yeah. out. Every I'm week. not on Twitter as much. You should get off Twitter. I should absolutely. Are you on Twitter all day? Still? Oh boy. Are not you? all day. I'm on a lot. I'm on a lot. It's, but it's it's for the brand of the organization. I yeah. Have to, yeah. I have to say that like run I, with that, Paul. I I got off, I basically all but got off Twitter after Trump got elected. Oh, I you just, get much happier just, when you're off Twitter. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And and like the FOMO went away too. Like I figure if anything really quote unquote goes down on Twitter, oh you'll hear about it. I'm gonna hear about yeah. it. So you'll yeah. hear about it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much thank for coming. Thank you. Down. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. See, you know, Richie can get a little down sometimes on on. You know, there's a lot of churn, a lot of tweets, a lot of Facebook posts, and a lot, a lot of nonsense. Of, a lot of Macedonian hackers writing about uh, mm-hmm. you know a lot of Russian spam bots. All right. But you can <laughs> also go somewhere and make really good media. And release it not too often and have some faith in humanity. Some depth. That's what you can do. Yeah. You can still do, do that in today's world. I, you know, we talk about it, but it's actually a deprogramming. It's going to take a bit to get to, to go gravitate. Oh, I that. like my infinite stimulus. Because Cheetos are delicious, yeah. too, right? Yeah. But That's you stuff a Thanksgiving turkey with the best of the both worlds, you know? Yeah. Anyway, look, uh, we should tell the people that this is Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight at Digital Product Studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. Well done, Paul. Thank you. Uh, Anybody needs us, hello at postlight.com. Thanks to Anna for being on our show. And we'll see you next week. Five stars on iTunes. Bye. Bye.